I have the enormous pleasure of speaking to an author who I discovered 10 years too late, if I'm perfectly honest, but who I'm grateful to have discovered nonetheless. He's a philosopher, a road-hardened gearhead, and the author of books that include The Case for Working with Your Hands, The World Beyond Your Head, On Becoming an Individual in an Age of Distraction, and the book we'll be discussing today, due to be published in the UK next month on July the 16th, Why We Drive, On Freedom, Risk, and Taking Back Control. Matthew Crawford, huge thanks for coming on the podcast. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, I have a small confession to make. I don't drive. I've lived and worked in cities since I was 18. Aside from this, the only way to explain why I don't drive borrows from the English novelist Kingsley Amos, who once said that by the time he could learn to drive, he could also afford a pint of beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can relate to that. To say that said, this book was by no means lost on me because whether it's driving or manual work or physical social interaction, the various I guess, forms of human competency that you explore and defend so passionately in your writing, I think speaks to a concern that we all have, which is that if we don't wise up, life and work in the 21st century is going to become more and more defanged, de-skilled and disembodied from physical reality. So to give readers a flavour of your philosophy, let me start by asking what it is that has motivated your writing over the past decade and how you arrived at the premise of Why We Drive. Hmm. Well, I guess uh, I think a writer has to kind of come up with a post hoc account of, of their own doings because it tends to be a little haphazard in the doings. But in you know, looking back in retrospect, I think that a common thread has been, well, just an attempt to make sense of the present and, and sort of get free of the uh, of the present in the sense of kind of taken for granted certitudes and offer a critique that is coming from, I don't know, a concern for human flourishing, for the due regard for our capacities as human beings, which which so often seem to be kind of eroding in this programmatic way. And in particular with driving, I mean, driving is just it's an activity that I've always enjoyed, both cars and motorcycles. And it's the more I thought about it, the more it seemed like a really rich activity that was worth trying to understand. So the the book is kind of a attempt at philosophical anthropology, you might say. I'm trying to figure out just what it is we're doing when we drive. And in the course of investigating that, I think I came up with a kind of critical account of the whole push toward um, automation and driverless cars. I suppose one way of summing up the message of this book is to say that whatever else it may be, driving is a fundamentally political act. And it's no coincidence that the subheading of the book contains those three words, taking back control. I'm going off of one of the later chapters of the book here when you write, quote, in driving, as in politics, we feel an unavoidable citizenly engagement with the idiots who surround us. <laughs> yeah. This is more than just a jokey comment on the frustrations of the road, isn't it? Well, I I do take the road as kind of, I don't know, microcosm of our sociality altogether. Because, I mean, it's an interesting place, the road. We're both very alone in our cars, you know, sort of sealed off from one another. And yet we're sharing this space of the road and have to cooperate 
And so it has this interesting hybrid quality to it that I think brings into relief some of the tensions between um, the sort of hyper-individualism of, especially I think in the Anglophone world on the one hand, and on the other hand, our hopes for solidarity and social trust. And when you're leaned into a blind curve on a motorcycle, on a two-lane road, it becomes very clear that the the road is a place of mutual trust. You know, there's just a, a, a line, a painted line that's, that's keeping that truck coming the other direction from, uh, from taking you out. So <clears throat> I think if we can understand our practices on the road uh, and the kind of social trust that they exhibit, you know, on a good day, it can maybe guide our hopes for uh, a renewal of, of social trust more broadly. While reading, I was reminded of something Steve Jobs once said, that the personal computer initially struck him as like giving a bicycle to the human mind, a tool that could amplify by orders of magnitude our pursuit of knowledge. The trouble with this analogy now, of course, is that, as you point out, we're increasingly forced to use tools that monopolize rather than assist our attention and which have eroded our agency and our ability to master the world we inhabit. So you describe there the sort of the kind of visceral pleasure of taking risks on a motorcycle. What is it that is turning the experience of driving or even just moving around into a form of assisted living, in your view? <laughs> I, I, I hadn't thought of that analogy, but I kind of like it. Yeah, there's this, I mean, I take driverless cars to be one instance of a wider shift in our relationship to the physical world in which the demands of competence give way to a promise of safety and convenience. So the skilled practitioner becomes a passive beneficiary of something more systemic that renders his skill obsolete. And, you know, the whole refrain with the push for driverless cars is that human beings are terrible drivers. Well, I mean, yes and no. In a sense, Silicon Valley is trying to solve the problem of distracted driving that they helped create, you know, with the smartphone. And maybe that's a good thing on balance, given the realities. But at the end of this trajectory, I mean, if you kind of just follow it out a few steps, um, when possible endpoint, I think is nicely captured in that film Wally. -E. Have you seen that? I have, and and I was thinking about Wally -E in the first few pages before you even mentioned it, because yeah, that that image that Disney creates of a, of a race of human beings who have evolved to have shorter legs and arms and are morbidly obese and you know hovering around in those cars. I mean, it's a very accurate portrayal of a possible future, in my view. Yeah, I think it. I think we sort of the, the reason that scene is so effective is it we recognize ourselves with a shock of aesthetic revulsion. And so these are beings who are completely safe and content and yet somehow less than human. You know, and I think there is a uh, a kind of symbiotic relationship between what I call safetyism and uh sort of the logic of of automation. Safetyism is, of course, a big theme in this book. You write about the uh, idiot-proofing features of modern cars, things like anti-lock technology, automated assistance, electronic stability control, even the proliferation of speed cams on the road, all of which aim to make the driving experience smoother and more risk-averse, yet end up doing two counterproductive things, right? They assume 
that the driver is an idiot and then go on to ensure that the driver becomes one. <laughs> yeah, there is a kind of um, a de a definitely a de-skilling effect. Uh, your skills atrophy from lack of use. So the the initial premise of our incompetence is sort of self-fulfilling. So I don't know. Safetyism is a number of things. I think one thing it is 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 a sensibility. There's a, there appears to be a feedback loop wherein the safer we become the more intolerable any remaining risk appears to us. And so, you know, th th there's some class difference in this, I think. It's it's sort of the, tends to be the sort of upper middle class that is most this way. You see it in, in child-rearing practices. Um, but I think this um, aversion to risk, it, it kind of makes us more susceptible to the claims made on behalf of automation and de-skilling because mm. that stuff often proceeds under uh, a promise of safety. And um, this is such a rich topic. It is, yeah. I recently read a book by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Luganoff on the coddling of the American mind. I heard Greg give a talk once. It was, it was very interesting. Yeah, it tackles just this, the cognitive distortions, as Hyde puts it, around safety and risk, and a generation that have sort of grown up with the internet as the water in which they swim almost, and the sort of yeah. abiding belief that whatever doesn't kill you makes you weaker, not stronger. I think that's a good a good starting point. So, yeah, speaking of online culture, is you have this kind of tension where, um, on the one hand, a kind of risk aversion in the real world, but you know, all these video games that people are so enthralled with is all about, you know, sort of heroic action stuff, war, and you get blown up and you kill people, but you know, then you just hit reset and there's, there's no real consequences. So it seems to both feed a kind of ersatz risk taking in a way that's sort of cut off from real world consequences. And I, I think that has to affect our character. Um, I mean, Freud has this really great account of what he calls infantile narcissism, which is precisely um, this feeling that the world revolves around you and um, anything that pushes back against your will is enraging. And so this is this is sort of the natural condition of an infant, and eventually you grow out of it. But I think there's such a thing as as culturally induced narcissism, understood as a kind of failure to appreciate that objects in the world are not simply subject to your whim and will. And that's something that you learn unequivocally when you you know go skateboarding, for example, and you fall on your ass, <laughs> and there's no. There's no interpreting away uh, the pain. I think physical pain has a educative effect um, mm. in sort of chastising that that sense of mastery that's that's cheaply won on a screen. It feels as though we could draw into this conversation any one of the now three books that you've written. However, um, you mentioned in YB Drive a law that was passed during the Obama administration that um, made it a legal obligation from 2018 for all new models of car to have fitted rear view cameras. And this was the result, uh, I believe, of a man who accidentally reversed over his, his own daughter. Now, yeah. it sounds almost commonsensical 
that whenever society learns of such tragic events, it has an obligation to try to find some form of future prevention. Well, the, with the rear view cameras, it, it is uh, it is practically a necessity um, simply because we've pursued automobile safety through this design trajectory of ever greater mass and elevation and enclosure. So, you know, when you're driving a 6,000 pound SUV that you can barely see out of, mm. yeah, a rear view camera is absolutely necessary. Um, so it's it's been like this vehicular arms race, every man for himself, of the increasing bloat of cars because it really is safer to be in a tank for you, for, for the occupants, um, whereas um, for whoever it is you run into, not so much. But um, there was this incident where a, a Google car came up to an intersection, uh, you know, it's a self-driving car, and it was a four-way stop intersection. The Google car came to a complete stop, as you're supposed to do, and waited for the other cars to come to a complete stop before it proceeded through the intersection. Uh, but of course, that's not what people do. So the Google car just froze. It didn't it didn't know what to do. And it kind of melted down there at the intersection. And the, uh, the Google engineer, the guy in charge of this thing, he said that what he had learned from the incident is that human beings need to be less idiotic. <laughs> which you know is an inference that comes quite naturally mm. if you take um the mind to be basically an inferior version of a computer because mm. what he was saying is that human beings need to act more like robots and be sort of strict rule followers and what struck me about that is that he seemed to be oblivious to the form of intelligence this on display at an intersection. So what do people do? They they make eye contact. One person might wave the other through. You know, it's always ambiguous cases of, of right-of-way, who got there first. There's almost a sort of body language of driving. Mm. It's fairly improvisational. You, people kind of work things out on the fly. They, they manage to cooperate somehow. And for the most part, this works just fine. Yes. But, yeah. But this kind of social intelligence can't be replicated with machine processes, and therefore it's just sort of invisible to this mindset. Yeah. I mean, I lived in China for three years, and taking taxis there, I can testify to what you mentioned in the book of the fact that in a lot of developing countries, you look at the way that vast throngs of traffic behave, and there's a beauty to the the harmony in spite of risk that you see on display, the, the sheer human intuition at work and the competency mm -hmm. that it takes not to crash on a daily basis. As it happens, yeah. I, I was involved in a car crash in China, so it was, uh, it was, it was an <laughs> exception to the rule. Right. And, you know, when, when Americans travel to Italy and they come back and they describe traffic in Rome, it's usually with this mixture of, of, sort of horror and admiration <laughs> because it looks like chaos and it looks like you know you're, you're taking your life in your hands just to try to walk across the street and it's interesting the the uh accident fatality rate in italy is actually lower than in the united states right. we're very kind of rule oriented so clearly the italians or the chinese or the you know 
the Indians in Mumbai, it doesn't look like they're following rules. And, and they're not in the sense that a computer scientist would regard rule following. But they are observing social norms. There's certain expectations that would be hard to fully spell out and articulate for a, for a, you know, a visitor. But they seem to all be on the same page in terms of their expectations of one another. And that gets to a really interesting bit of um, sort of recent cognitive science that suggests that the human mind is essentially organized as a prediction engine. We're exquisitely good at sort of mutually predicting one another's behavior and also modifying our own behavior so as to make it more predictable to others. And social norms provide an important help for that. It lets us know what to expect. Did you speak to many Google engineers in the writing of the book? Well, I've spoken at Google a couple of times and just had offhand conversations. And I'm now essentially living in Silicon Valley. And I've met a couple of people who are working in autonomous car um, space. So, yeah. How do they react when you quote developments in cognitive science, such as those you've just spelled out? Uh, yeah, um, I haven't uh, gotten gotten deep into that stuff in any of these conversations just because you don't feel sort of the opening to get into stuff that they're not sort of interested in. Yeah, yeah, um, I imagine. But, you know, as I said, the, the the Google engineer with that episode at the intersection is concluding that human beings need to be more like robots. But the other, of course, the alternative is that human beings should just step out of the way and move aside to make room for the driverless cars. And that's actually the more likely scenario, because one thing we've learned and that the engineers will fully concede is that for these two forms of intelligence, the human and the artificial, to share the road together is a very dim prospect um, for them to be able to to mutually um, share the same space of the road. So what that means is that for driverless cars to really realize their potential, uh, you have to get humans off the roads. So there is a kind of totalizing logic to this. And of course, one element of that is that with partially automated driving, it, it does lead to an atrophy of our skills. And there's some good literature in the field of um, human factors research that spells this out. And of course, that leads to demands for further automation. So it's, um, I think what we're seeing is the space for intelligent human action gets colonized by machines. Mm-hmm. And that's, it does seem to have a kind of internal logic that presses toward um a kind of total solution, a systemic, you know, reordering of the infrastructure. And the smart city, of course, is part of that picture because driverless cars, again, to to realize their full potential, you're going to have to have sensors embedded throughout the roads and a kind of centralized coordination of our movements. And think about, you know, do you really want to be getting from point A to point B, something you do not in a car, but in a device, right? It's mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> a device that's sort of a portal to overlapping bureaucracies. You obviously celebrate as well classic cars and the connoisseur culture that collects and restores and cares for them. 
And both the cars and the connoisseurs, it seems, have been pushed into the obscure recesses of culture in America. And the reasons you give for this are, one, that there is now the sort of the foregone conclusion of built-in obsolescence to vehicles and the success of corporations uh, in turning progressive politics around climate change to their advantage by selling essentially ever newer models of car on the narrative that the old is the enemy of progress and sustainability. Um, of course, you don't buy that, do you? Well, let me put it this way. So I recently <clears throat> put together a 1970 Carmen Ghia Volkswagen from parts that had essentially been cast off, mostly junkyard parts, and it gets 32 miles per gallon. Now, you can buy a hybrid SUV, Lexus is one I, I looked at, that gets 31 miles per gallon, so about the same, but somehow this is more green. You know, if you look at the sort of intercontinental materials flows that brought it into existence, um, just the sheer amount of energy that goes into producing a new car, uh, you know, the, the the logic, the environmental logic of it just doesn't hold up. Um, but there's a kind of aesthetic of, you know, greeniness that attaches to the hybrid and also obviously a kind of uh, class signaling environmental virtue. Whereas, you know, the rusty old ratty looking car has a kind of pallor of irresponsibility about it. Um, and, the, and part of the equation here is that people who uh, are into old cars, whether as a hobbyist or out of necessity, they often have parts cars stashed around their property. And uh, sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll get a, a notice from the city saying you got to get rid of it. And it's a kind of bureaucratic piracy that's dispossessing people of a, a form of wealth. Which sort of all started with the Highway Beautification Act, right, in the mid-60s. Yeah, I mean, it was a very well-intended thing. It was it was Lady Bird Johnson. So this is the first lady um, under the Johnson administration. So apparently the, the U.S. used to be quite an ugly place. Uh, there was more litter back then. We sort of hadn't yet learned not to litter. <laughs> yeah, I think in Mad Men this is captured in certain scenes. Families going yeah. on picnics and leaving the entire thing there while they drive off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, there was an ad campaign that I remember as a kid of the Native American crying at the sight of his beautiful land being trashed uh, by these litterers. And, and apparently it had a huge effect. So anyway, part of that Highway Beautification Act was getting rid of billboards, uh, which were just kind of haphazardly everywhere, and also screening off junkyards so they weren't visible from the road, which I think it's, you know, it's perfectly great. But that kind of ushered in a, a larger aesthetic of tidiness, wherein old cars were seen to be a, a thorn in the side of the future. And the most um, sort of explicit manifestation of that is the Cash for clunkers programs. Right. And this started in the in the early nineties. Um, the idea is that we'll give you five hundred dollars if you'll destroy your car. <laughs> and the rationale offered is that it's older cars that are responsible for the great bulk of tailpipe emissions. So let's get them off the road. But it's not true, right? It's it's a fabrication. Well, 
it's ambiguously true. And to get into the details, uh, I do that in the book. But the origins of this initiative are quite interesting. So there was a oil refinery, Unical, that was being forced to do some very expensive upgrades to clean up its emissions from its smokestacks, uh, which, of course, it didn't want to do. And it hit on this PR gambit where they said, well, let's destroy a bunch of old cars and sort of make a lot of noise about doing this as a kind of public spirited um, you know, demonstration on the premise that old cars are gross polluters. And this was before there was such a thing as trading in carbon offsets, which is now a huge thing. So what that means is that emissions over here and emissions over there are fungible. So let's create a market where you can purchase a an allowance for em- emitting pollution because you're, you know, buying someone else's right to do so. Anyway, this is actually the event that created that market. <clears throat> so instead of cleaning up your own smokestacks, what you do is go and destroy thousands of pre-1970 rust-free Southern California cars. Mm. Anyway, the the empirical picture is a mixed bag, but it's certainly not the case that it supports um, these cash for clunker programs uh, designed to destroy old cars. One very interesting chapter in the book is where you write about the experiment carried out at the University of Richmond last year that effectively taught rats to drive. Now, I actually remember reading this article in, I think, October Uh last year, but I had no idea that it was your wife the cognitive psychologist, Elizabeth Crawford, who was instrumental in setting up and running it. Uh, Could we talk a little bit about what she and her colleague Kelly Lambert discovered in this process, particularly what it revealed about how rats deal with stress hormones when problem solving and how the skill of learning to drive influences that? Yeah, so um, my wife was tinkering with stuff. She had taken a sabbatical. She's a psychology professor and was messing around with electronics and somehow it popped into her head like i wonder if i could teach a rat to drive a car (laughs) you know a little rat-sized car and this is i mean this didn't come out of nowhere because her research uh, much of it was in embodied cognition as it's called meaning uh, trying to understand how the mind and body work together to Mm. solve problems Uh, we're not just a brain in a jar the fact that we have bodies very much conditions the way we um, grasp the world. Yeah, you just wonder why it hadn't been done before. It's such a brilliant idea. I mean, rats have been subject to all kinds of experiments for 100 years now. <clears throat> Psychologists love rats right? Um, even more than they love undergraduates. I think they're, <laughs> they're cheaper <laughs> to experiment on. Um, so she teamed up with Kelly Lambert, who had done a lot of research with rats, and my wife took the lead in in working out the rat ergonomics, essentially, to, to make them a little car. I had the honor of, of welding up a little uh, joystick housing to help them steer. But where it gets interesting is this. You put a Fruit Loop. Do you have Fruit Loops in the UK? I wish we had them more often, Matt. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's a sugary breakfast cereal. Uh, that kids love, and it turns out rats love them too. Initially, you make the Fruit Loop right next to the car, and so the rat just has to make the car pivot a little bit to get the Fruit Loop. 
the ultimate version of the task was to put the Fruit Loop over here, the car over there, but have the car pointed in the wrong direction, you know, far from the Fruit Loop. And what the rats eventually learn to do after bumping into walls and getting frustrated is you now see them actually maneuvering across the room to get the fruit loop. This is sort of a zigzag motion where they go a little bit this way, they correct course, they move the other way, and eventually they get there. And why this is significant is that they're put in a kind of problem space that is open-ended, meaning after each of these zigs, they have to figure out what to do next to zag to get to the fruit loop. And so it's a, a genuine instance of problem solving by these animals who are very intelligent, as it turns out. And this feeds into earlier research by Kelly Lambert showing that when rats are given a kind of rich environment where they have to solve problems, as in their natural environment, they're happier. Their their response to various stressors is less. They're, they're less depressed. It turns out there's such a thing as rat depression. Right. You know, if you raise a rat in a plexiglass enclosure in a laboratory, it's a different kind of animal than one that is raised in a natural environment where they're dealing with all kinds of different stimuli and, and figuring things out. Um, so the implications is that for humans, too, if you just put them in a driverless car and have them passively taken care of, there's research suggesting that that leads to increased anxiety, less kind of resilience to stress. You know, our brains evolved in bodies that move and we seem to need movement. There's also great research on infants and how it's when they begin to crawl and move around for themselves as opposed to being passively carried, that they begin to develop a mental map of the world. The hippocampus part of the brain develops. Um, so it's really crucial to our development and sort of ongoing mental health to be in control of our own movements. Yeah. For someone like myself who is a non-driver, I think the pride and the insistence on walking places that seem to mm -hmm. a lot of people crazy is because of this. There's also a, a wonderful book on walking that will be coming out soon, I hope, by Garnett Cadigan. He's actually a friend of mine. He's from Jamaica, uh, lives in Virginia. And uh, he he really kind of explores uh, walking in a, in a rich way. One point he makes that I find really nice is that when you step out onto an urban sidewalk, you never really know what you're going to encounter um, so it's a, a kind of act of throwing yourself into the world with hope and uncertainty and opening yourself to serendipity. Mm. And he points out that serendipity is sort of a secular way of speaking of grace, meaning the arrival of something unlooked for and unmerited. And of course, that's inextricably bound up with risk, right? The positive and negative possibilities that you hadn't anticipated uh, come together as a package. Uh, that was a really nice point. I, I try to relate it to riding a motorcycle off-road on a trail with roots and rocks and mud and all the stuff that's coming at you. And that, too, feels like throwing yourself 
into a situation with the kind of faith that you'll be able to see your way through. And if it goes well, which it doesn't always, that faith redeemed feels, I don't know, it feels great. I once had four trips to the emergency room in the course of 12 months while pursuing that feeling on a dirt bike. Really? Wow. Yeah. I mean, when you get a glimmer of some new finesse, uh, because you you hung it out a little bit beyond your current comfort level, beyond your current skills, and it goes well. To me, I feel somehow vindicated. And I think so much of modern life, we're so insulated from the possibility of physical harm that it leads to a, a kind of simmering discontent. I think men maybe are especially prone to this, a kind of um, wondering about your own uh, somehow there's like a question mark hanging over you if you're not facing um, kind of physical peril. Maybe that's some ha- hangover from our evolution. I don't know. Probably so. Yeah. A question over your validity. Um, was yeah. it Samuel Johnson who famously said that every man disparages himself for never having been a soldier? Hmm. I hadn't, hadn't heard that. This is in many ways why the book is so timely. Right now, millions of people all over the world have found themselves forced into a vast social experiment, which the longer it goes on, will push our most basic workaday skills further into abstraction. I'm talking here, of course, about the the lockdown. And I expect that getting into a car or even just stepping onto a train and having to change platforms once this is over will feel very strange to a lot of people. How has the COVID-19 pandemic made you reflect on what you argue in this book? Well... For starters, it's a great time for driving because the roads are so empty. Um, I took a trip, a motorcycle ride down Highway 1, which you've probably heard of, runs down the California coast through Big Sur. It's spectacular. Yeah, how was that? Yeah, so normally it's you know, choked with German tourists driving Mustang convertibles while holding a selfie stick uh, and taking selfies driving 20 miles an hour. <laughs> So it's it's hard to enjoy the road uh, with that, but it's it's empty now. So there's that, and also there's someone pointed out this must have been a month ago that L.A. had a a lower in California in general a lower kind of rate of infection than would be expected by the models and people speculating on whether that's because we drive so much here as opposed to taking public transportation i gather the the subway in new york was a real um spreader sounds very plausible this is not an argument by the way for not investing in public transportation um, appreciate it yeah i think we we badly misallocated funds over the last well, really 70 years in the u.s by not investing in public transportation but anyway it's interesting to watch the equanimity with which part of the population has accepted the necessity of social distancing and wearing the masks and all that. And then, you know, part of the population regards this as a kind of effort at social control by elites who are just totally untrustworthy at this point and seem to invoke science in this sort of haphazard way as a authority figure for making the population more obedient you know i can see both perspectives but it's interesting that this moment of of the pandemic arrives at a time when the institutional 
establishment is already in a panic about uh, sort of losing grip on their legitimacy. And I think that's definitely feeding into a response to the lockdown. What course of action do you think ultimately stands the best chance of saving us from being stripped altogether of our agency on the road? So to bring this down to the kind of practical matters, we have this problem of distracted driving, which is a genuine, it's a serious problem, especially if you ride a motorcycle. I mean, motorcycle fatality is shot up as soon as the iPhone was introduced. And, you know, the, the iPhone came along and now we had something to keep boredom at bay while driving. And so the, the prior problem is that driving had been made so boring through design changes that make the car so heavy, so insulated from the road. There's nothing for you to do, really, if it's automatic uh, and you've got cruise control and all that. So, you know, the driverless car is solving that problem. Uh, sort of the the one more computer solution. Right. But maybe there are much simpler remedies for distracted driving. I mean, it wouldn't be that hard to to sort of insulate the car from any form of communication or, you know, you have to stop to actually use it. I mean, that would be a fairly trivial technical problem. But that's not a solution that generates new <laughs> new revenue for anyone, right? And we have a, a political establishment that's largely captured in a kind of crony capitalism, as we call it here. Um, so I don't know what the prospects are for that. But I do think, I mean, you pointed to China and more generally the developing world where we're kind of reminded of driving practices where people do have to work things out on the fly. And it's impressive. And if we kind of remind ourselves of that, I think that could have some good effect. I also think that we need to rethink the trajectory of automobile design, make cars much lighter, uh, much simpler, uh, much cheaper, um, and give up this arms race of mass and elevation that makes us individually safer, but collectively you know, more dangerous. A recurring suggestion is that we measure gross domestic well-being rather than gross domestic product. And in a sense, that points to this thought that there are things beyond not just economic growth, but this sort of utilitarian model of the good. And maybe, would you agree, as counterintuitive as it may sound, we place longevity of life on such a pedestal as to take away what would make a life worth living. And part of what makes a life worth living is visceral engagement with risk. Yeah. So I have a chapter in Why We Drive called the motor equivalent of war, which is a play on the title of William James' famous essay, uh, A Moral Equivalent of War. So James and others, you know, this is around the early, or I guess late 19th century, were concerned about a, a creeping innervation that they saw Teddy Roosevelt talk about, uh, the, the Molly Coddle type that he saw proliferating you know nietzsche had this critique of the last man who's this creature who's just concerned with his own comfort and safety incapable of anything great or beautiful henri bexon in france talked about elan vital the vital spirit as the crucial human thing and more recently you had the movie fight club 
which I think revived this line of critique, the critique being that in times of peace and prosperity, uh, there's a kind of atrophy of, of a part of the soul that there's something important about. Right. So William James thought that that sort of toughness and hardness uh, were necessary, and he was looking for some way to express this without the bloodshed of war. And so I take these excursions into various uh, grassroots motorsports scenes, and what struck me is the spirit of play you see there, which seems to be connected to what people find attractive about war because they do right young men always hankering for war it seems so in motorsport there's sort of these warlike energies and it's a spirit of rivalry and friendship combined and there's sort of a closed circle of the play community and it's a you know all sport is a realm that's completely free of utility in its calculations right it's just for its own sake doesn't have to justify itself in terms of utility and um it's just really impressive to to see people take their skill to that kind of level i don't know there's something beautiful to me about that form of rivalry and excellence and that that mix that mix of hostility and friendship is just i find it very appealing yeah and i I think there's a universality to that i mean an ex-marine friend of mine says that wherever she's traveled and she's traveled a lot in the world one thing she knows for sure she always says boys will always wrestle each other to the ground and play fight it would be wrong, I think, to misrepresent why we drive as a book simply about driving and what it means to us. It's about so much more. It's it's about what it means to take physical risks, as we've talked about, what it means to enter forms of play as human beings, about the cultivation of self-esteem and dignity in place and community. And I think, as with all your books, it calls on us all to protect those primordial aspects of our nature, which we're encouraged increasingly to disown or disparage or defer to greater entities than ourselves. Um, You certainly don't need to drive to appreciate that. So I'll leave it there and and just say thank you, Matt, for writing this book and for speaking to me. I should just let you speak on behalf of the book. You're much better at it than I am. So that was was very nicely said. You're very welcome. And thank you once again. Um, So when Uh, the lockdown is finally lifted properly uh, and you're able to not just get out on the road on your motorcycle or in your car but actually get out of your car and into your favorite local diner or what have you where will that place be well i do miss my neighborhood pub um there was a real i don't know you ever see the tv show cheers yeah Uh, yeah you know a place where everyone knows your name and and that's I, I do miss that and uh my bartender troy uh, is a good man shout out to him so it'll be good to uh get back to normal life matthew Crawford, thank you very much all right thanks jack bye now okay bye-bye